Beth, hello. Hello, David. How are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? I am very well, thank you. Now, Beth, I was listening to last week's podcast, and uh, which I always do sort of once it goes out. So I'm not listening from a editing or thinking about asking questions perspective. I like to just have a listener experience a bit more. And I realised that when we were chatting about things at the beginning of podcasts and TV, we mentioned Line of Duty. And I realised that I said um, that I thought you would be totally fine with the ending because it's intellectually very satisfying and emotionally woefully inadequate. <laughs> and and oh, as soon as I heard it, I thought, I didn't mean that because it was those things. Anyway, um, anyway, I... You know. Are you trying to call me intellectually satisfying and emotionally woefully inadequate, David? Well, <laughs> I wasn't, but I realised it sounded like I might have been, and I didn't mean that. So, you know, uh, I apologise for that. Um, I just, it's funny when you listen back, you think, oh, that's not what I meant at all. I do find it a bit scary sending this out into the world. I have to say, I feel quite vulnerable each week about mm. how, it, how things get heard, but me too. And, and also just the, the sheer cringe of just listening to your own voice. It's like oh, yeah. times infinity, isn't it? But I've also been doing it just to kind of hear how we sound to, to everyone who's tuning in. And then I've realized that one of the things I, I, I say, like, one phrase like multiple times in an episode I'm like what why have I said that again <laughs> <laughs> um and uh, so I, I heard the first time I heard it and um, I was really struck by I kept saying I was really struck by and now if I say it today you're gonna hear it aren't you just <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um, I was really struck by this and um and then I was in a work in uh, work meeting the other day and um and I was just listening to my colleague and he was like I was really struck like this and I was like oh I've got it from you <laughs> this is where it's come from I remember and, and often it, you don't notice those things and people don't really tell you either um I I remember in my last church I did a lot of work in a primary school we planted a new congregation in this school and that's where we met and uh I spent I, I was a governor and I did all their RE lessons classes did drama clubs all sorts of things it was great and I used to do assembly probably every other week for them on a Monday and I obviously had a number of phrases I used every week in assembly without realizing I did. And we always prayed at the end, but I'd always say, and if you want to make my prayer your prayer, you can say amen at the end. You know, very conscious. I don't want to you know, got to work with all the boundaries. Anyway, when I left on my last day, they asked me to come into school in the afternoon, which I was fine. And they took me down to the hall and all the kids were there. And they basically did a whole 20 minute skit mocking all the things that I say all the time like it wasn't just the staff this was all the children I'd clearly used the same for you know I mean it was done with great love and affection I'm sure and well that's how I took it anyway but it, it struck me that I I obviously do do that I mean at some point here I guess they'll tell me uh what I say over and over but uh, yeah bizarre so, so everyone who's listening in now is going to be just tweeting us all the things that they've noticed that we say <laughs> <laughs> Could you not do that in the future? <laughs> so um we were we were thinking about um uh we're we're gonna listen to an interview in a bit uh, where the person that we're gonna listen to uh tells us a bit about some of the things that they're up to that aren't ministry. Mm -hmm. And um and it made me think, you know, um I wonder, you know, in our kind of getting to know you, um, so that everyone who's listening in can get to know us a little bit, kind of uh David, what, what is it that you do to chill out? I mean are you a hobbies person? I've I've got a, a note here says, do you have a crochet blanket on the go? You know, what is it that you do that's uh, to chill out? 
Well, I can categorically confirm that I don't have a crochet blanket on the go. I've never crocheted, got no idea how to crochet. I'd rather clean than learn how to crochet. Um, I, I was thinking about this and it's changed quite a lot, sort of pre and post children uh, mm -hmm. for us. So before children, particularly in our last church where we were, Anna and I would be out in London quite a bit. I enjoy the theatre and live comedy and uh, lots of things all around that kind of stuff. Um, but since children, I've just had to adapt slightly and life has changed in a variety of ways. And since moving to Shoebury as well. So uh, I love listening to podcasts. That's something I do to, to relax. Um, I try and read. I try and run at least a couple of times a week. Uh, mm. I find running very um, cathartic. I tend to listen to some uh, dance music while I'm running. Um, it's not it's not thinking time for me. It's uh, sort of just I, I, I'd like going at the end of the day. Often I go to a 24 hour gym to run. I don't run around the roads because I end up just bumping into people that I know and I don't like that. Um, no one needs to be put in that circumstance. Um, but I, I find it and I, I find particularly not at the moment because, you know, life is is reasonable. But uh, when times are a bit more challenging or whatever, I find it helpful to run off the day. I remember one point a number of years ago now. I think it was when I was on sabbatical five years ago. And I, 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 yeah, I was crying every time I ran, but actually that was such a helpful thing. So, so I like, I like doing that. And I just have quite a, a nerdy interest in all things politics, really UK and US. Um, so I like to follow all the sorts of things I can. So, you know, whether it's elections that then lead into reshuffles that then lead into the opening of parliament. I mean, that's like a dream week of, of news watching and reading for me. Uh, and I spent most of Saturday just watching, you know, various local authorities announce, you know, how many councillors are going to be presenting. I was quite happy. I'd have been happy there all day if I didn't have other things to do. Uh, so that's a bit of uh, what I like to do when I'm not t watching children play football, which is what I actually spend most of my weekends doing. Uh, but what about you? Are you a crochet blanket kind of a person? No, I'm I'm not a crochet blanket sort of a person. Okay. Um no, I I realise I've I've written this question down for you, and I haven't thought of any good answers. <laughs> and I'm just going to sound really boring. Um, I think well, it's lockdown at the moment, isn't it? So I, mm. I think part of the challenge is we all haven't left the house in so long that I think we've all got a bit stir crazy. Um, we I I feel like again, also children ate our free time. So mm. where we would have gone, um, out to the pub or out for dinner quite a lot. I think we generally um we did socialise. We went out. We tried out the house that that for us um uh we live in uh, we've always lived in ministry houses where the the, the work turns up at the door and so actually getting mm. out of the house has been quite a key part of of getting away um so we've always been out and it's kind of social and it's been about seeing friends and things like that and i realized that um in these lockdown times it's been it's been a bit of a strange one of kind of also because for me lockdown and maternity leave literally happened at the same time so yeah. i had a two-week-old baby when the world got locked down and i i haven't i feel like i haven't quite left the house since i had him um but i i have friends i walk with um they keep me sane <laughs> They've also got small people and, and it's just, you know, kind of putting the world to rights and having those like kind of really deep and interesting conversations where you can just pick up where you left off and um, you just temporarily can suspend, you know, kind of whether there's enough laundry that's clean for the next day kind of chat and just kind of move into a world of kind of what do you think about this interesting philosophical idea? And because, yeah, apparently because I'm that sort of friend. <laughs> <laughs> you're talking about emotional things too i should say but, um, uh, <laughs> I, 
we just have I, I really enjoy all I've noticed all my friends are doctors. Not quite all my friends, but a lot of my friends are doctors. Um As in medical doctors or Okay. Yeah, and and I mean the ones who aren't ministers or who aren't um theologian friends from university and you know or and friends from university in general i i think the the kind of the newer friends that we've often made not always true but often have been um people who've either worked in publishing or who've been doctors and um i think there is something about maybe with the medical care thing a way of understanding life and death and the fullness of every everything that happens that means that you can kind of you kind of get it you get the mm -hmm. responsibility maybe um so anyway um so we have really interesting conversations around kind yeah. of psychology and um ethics and politics and things like that um so yeah big shout out to to my friend who uh, keep me sane whilst walking oh and the other thing we've done recently is um we obviously didn't get away last year on any form of holiday and um probably not gonna happen this year either because we weren't organized and literally everybody's bought out every place ever um so we um we ha we we had a bit of an impulse purchase of a hot tub and Ooh. it is the best um so vicarage spa is now fully open and um it's amazing so we've um yeah so that's um a way of feeling like it's kind of costa costa del you know costa del vicarage in our garden um and uh yeah so that's just been a completely again a way of getting out of the house in a way that's not getting out of the house when you can't leave kids and yeah, yeah. so um interesting that's kind of um so yeah. I mean, we live we live next door to the church car park here so the idea of putting a hot tub in our garden <laughs> fills me with absolute horror <laughs> we also live next door to the church and we also live next door to the church car park and the school but fortunately our garden is is very wild and enclosed and actually that's the other thing that we've been doing a lot of over lockdown is trying to um rein our garden back into some form of submission and in fact we discovered um having lived here for a year and a half that what we thought was um, just a, like a hedge, um, it turns out um, had a shed hidden behind the bushes oh, and wow. wasn't like a fence and a boundary, but in fact, an extra, oh, I don't know, um, four or five metres of garden minimum. Um, so we, we managed to hack our way into what was like, an, we threw an enchanted forest, obviously, in, into this kind of shed um, to see if, you know, any of the previous vicars had been buried there. Um, no previous vicars, I'm pleased to say. A filing cabinet that I think must have passed GDP, GDPR just by simply on the basis that the level of hacking through brambles to get to it was quite <laughs> high. Oh, that's um, definitely in the regulations. I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we, um, so we, we demolished this shed and we've been turning, um, turning this crazy bramble area into like a proper nice patio and, um, and a bit of a space for the kids. Yeah. To play. Sounds like quite a project. It's been good. I mean, it was a bit of a mental thing to do over lockdown, but it's been sort of sanity keeping to have mm -hmm. something like that to do. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we've established that we're really cool, David. Um, well, absolutely right. I, uh, yeah. I will I, take any hobby suggestions. If people have got any good <laughs> <laughs> So who are we talking to today? Yeah. So today we are talking to the Reverend Dr. Myra Blythe. Um, and 
Myra, for, um, will be known to many people. She is sort of one of those union names. Um, and perhaps uh, a union name particularly for people who own um, a blue book of worship uh, prayers um, called Gathering for Worship. Um, then you will see Alison Blythe on the cover or in the in the kind of, I was going to call it the credits. And that's a sign that we've been watching too, been doing too many podcasts and, and not enough uh, book referencing there. Um, so we, um, so, so Myra is one of those names that people might have met through that. Um, uh, but many people will know her through Regents, um, where she's been chaplain for the last 17, I think it's 17 years. Um, yes, yeah, 17 years. Uh, she was chaplain there. She retired um, last summer. And when we first thought we might be able to get this up and running before the pandemic happened, we were thinking this would just coincide nicely with her retirement and we, we missed it. So that's something we kind of pick up on in the in the talk. Um, she she got ordained. She went to Regents as a, an undergrad and a ministerial um, and was ordained at 21. So she has had four decades of ministerial experience in a whole variety of settings. So she's been a local pastorate, but she's spent a lot of her time doing ecumenical work with the World Council of Churches um, and also was Deputy General Secretary of the Baptist Union. So she appears, if you ever write an essay on women in ministry, she's probably one of those names that um, gets quoted as the first. Um, and it's sort of those sorts of things that we've um yeah, we've kind of picked up on and and reflected on in our interview today so shall we tune in have a listen right looking forward to it hello myra welcome hello, to Beth. thank you good to be here very nice to have you on um so Myra, when we were planning this um, a long time ago, uh, David and I had planned that we would start this podcast about the same time that you were due for retirement. Um, and we thought it would be great to have you on and you could kind of reflect a bit about kind of wrapping up at Regents and, and kind of going into this new chapter of your life. And, and then what happened was a major pandemic. Um, and so you had your last term at Regents online and we sent you off online and then... Um, You've had your first year of retirement online, I suppose. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. How how is how has it been? Was it how how has that experience been in general for you? Um, I I think the year has been a, a, a wonderful kind of um, easing into a new a new lifestyle with the with the enormous pleasure of thinking of how wonderful it has been to um, to have been blessed with such a lot of possibilities for different kind of ministry over 40 years. Um, it, it's been really exciting. And the, and the final phase at Regents was, was sort of icing on the cake, really. It was just delightful. Um, so this year, um, lockdown, in a way, has been the sort of um, soft landing. It's like we've all been in a bit of a cocoon. Um, and I've been in contact with everybody else in the way that they've been in contact with each other. So it feels like we've all gone into a different world. And I hardly, at one level, don't uh, hardly notice a difference. On the other hand, um, life is much gentler and freer. Um, the, the time is my own to organise. Um, that's such an indulgence. It's unbelievable. Um, and it's been a kind of working out how to have a balance in, in life. Um, so 
I've I've kind of got a palette of projects <laughs> which I um, give time to with varying degrees of enthusiasm, um, and, and and they're progressing quite well. Some of them are very personal, others are continuations of of work that I've done before. Um, perhaps I can briefly give you a, a little rundown of the palette, the very personal ones. Um, okay, um, I decided in, in retirement, it's really important to do exercise and I can walk and walk far, but sometimes that gets a bit boring. So I've decided to walk and hit a ball at the same time. And I'm learning to play golf. It is delightful. I'm, I'm over the moon about it. Um, in danger of becoming obsessed with it. So that's project number one. Project number two, um, I, I love France. We go to France a lot. And I have always wanted to improve my French. So I now study French several, um, several hours a week, quite a lot of hours a week, actually, and have personal tuition with um, a tutor in France. And I'm working towards a public examination um, at intermediate level, which is, yeah, good, challenging. And that gives me all the excuses in the world to watch Netflix films in French. <laughs> um, that way I can tell myself I'm working hard here, <laughs> but actually I'm just enjoying soap. Um, now, to get to the more serious side of life, um, although I, I have to say I take both of those things very seriously, um, I'm also continuing my research in restorative justice and this year um, have completed a publication together with two colleagues, um, Matthew Mills and Michael Taylor, and it will be produced by Palgrave um, in June of this year um, at a terribly knockdown price of £49.99. Um, so I don't, too many people are going to buy it, but it's on restorative justice and forgiveness. And really it's been fun to do. What, what's new in that area is um, I've been working quite hard with some colleagues based in Regents on discussions and dialogues with academics in China to see where restorative justice is being used there. And we've done a number of seminars, lunchtime seminars. Um, Zoom is just amazing. You know, we get over a hundred people coming to these seminars and you just think that would never have been possible before. Mm. So the stuff moving and opening um, and in the context of the UK-China, when relations are so delicate and so difficult, um, it's good to be trying to explore areas where we can talk together um, and, and share information and exchange. The other area in restorative justice is working with something called the Mint House. The Mint House is based at New Road Baptist Church and was started um, by the congregation at New Road. It's a centre for restorative practice in the city of Oxford. And it, it's growing exponentially. It's unbelievable, actually. Um, there's a small board of trustees and we've got a growing team of trainers providing training and restorative practice through Oxfordshire County Council to health workers and probation workers. And we're also looking at trying to introduce it into the universities. They're a bit slow off the mark here in the UK, but not elsewhere in the world. So there's a job to be done there to see where restorative practice can be an, a different angle in on discipline and on welfare. Mm. Now, that's enough from me. That's my projects. That's why I've got plenty to do um, and enjoying it enormously. I just 
Um, I wonder for some of our listeners who maybe wouldn't have come across restorative uh, practice so much, would you be able to give a, a kind of like a, a minute definition of, of what that looks like? Um, you know, you're talking about training people up in it in, in lots of different areas. Is there a kind of a, a snappy definition of quite what you mean by... Okay, restorative practice is trying to deal with conflict situations um, in a way that doesn't go headlong into adversarial disciplinary procedures, first and foremost. It starts with um, those most affected, so you could say harmed and harmer, um, but also a wider circle of people can be brought in and basically says, um, if you are interested in trying to talk this through so that you can have a direct dialogue with the person or the situation and group with whom you have run into problems, that can be managed in a way that is not cheap or sidestepping justice, but is understanding justice as relational. Mm. So it's about restoring and repairing harm by the key actors themselves, which is what has fallen away from our procedural systems, because most often the harmed and the harmer are kind of separated by a wide gap and never speak to each other, even are not allowed to speak to each other. And mediators or professionals do all the talking and others do the judging and the deciding. And this is about putting power back into the hands of those who might want to deal with the situation in a different way. Hmm. That's a great summary, thank you. Um, so, um, you've you've retired um you sound like you're about as busy as you've ever been <laughs> um but you've had a lifetime of of kind of practice <laughs> ministry and i i think um one of the questions we were kind of trying to uh, get through for for every guest is to ask kind of something about what why are you a baptist um and and perhaps how has that for you maybe changed because you've 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 been a you've been a Baptist minister for quite a long time. I'm I'm not going to out the years, but um, how how has your Baptist identity maybe changed through your life as well? As I guess, imagine that might not be a static answer. Oh, definitely not static. Um, what is a given is that I was I was brought up and brought into the faith through Baptist churches. Um, my family were Baptist. My father was a Baptist minister. Um, wider family was all Baptist. So there's a sense in which I, I didn't choose to become Baptist. Um, I grew up in the faith where Baptist practice was the norm. Mm. It may seem funny to think that Baptist practice is the norm, but that was my small parameters and experience of the world. We started Baptist and, oh, there's something else, really? Um, so that's the start. And, and my early roots in Scotland, where Catholic Protestant divide was palpable, you could have imagined that that would have turned me against um, other expressions of the faith. But in fact, my father in particular um, encouraged me from a very early age to be open to other denominations. And, and that I think was absolutely formative because it was always the case that I both had permission to to look in other places and quickly found that by getting to know Christians in other traditions how 
refreshing and exciting um, this all became because um, meeting other Christians, I, I realized that whilst my faith and my upbringing was intensely important, left to itself would have potentially run out of steam. What I gained from a wider circle of friends in, in the Christian community was um, an appreciation of theology as more open and questioning than, than maybe the tradition in which I grew up always invites. And I found in other traditions, spiritual resources, wells, if you like, to draw from that meant I was able to grow and deepen in my spirituality, not over against what I'd been, but to enrich it and make it better. Um, a key example of that was around the age of um, 20, 21, I first encountered um, the Taizé community when they came to the UK. And I went into St. Paul's Cathedral where there was just darkness and candles and this waft of singing, which was so overwhelming. And it was like not meeting something alien, but finding something inside of myself I had never tapped before hmm. and thinking, oh my goodness, this is really special. And ever, ever so much, that's been my experience through life. When I've moved into different arenas of Christianity um, to, to gain so many gifts, it, it has confirmed for me again and again that diversity is a gift, not a threat. Hmm. And, and, and the ecumenical movement, although it will go through periods of stagnation, um, in its deep roots, there is something that will always go on renewing the church. Um, I don't know if you want me to say more on that just now, but for me at least, I, I have found myself, uh, I should say, when you said, why am I Baptist? Because I still am Baptist. And a minister at 21, I've gone through probably five different chapters of ministry. Um, and there have been times when I have been tempted to jump ship. But I think what has kept me in the Baptist family has been the more I got to know others, no matter how much I loved them and gained from them, I also realized that their problems were as big as mine. <laughs> and that actually it, it's, a, it, it, it's not necessarily the way to answer the questions we live with. Jumping ship may be right for some, but I've come to interpret my staying with and moving in Baptist circles as a little bit like in the Pauline texts we would read um, to, to be transformed through the renewal of the mind within the tradition within which we have been formed. That was how Paul understood his growing in faith from Judaism to Christianity. He didn't leave Judaism behind. He was transformed through the renewal of the mind and brought everything he had with him. Um, and I, I, I think 
for me, Baptist life has constantly been um, a kind of reference point, but it hasn't been a, um, a, an anchor that holds me back from constant transformation through contact with others. Um, but maybe, therefore, by staying in the ship, um, one can bring something to it, I hope. I think uh, the, um, I knew your name before I ever met you because, and I'm sure this will be true for other people who are listening in, because you edited, of course, Gathering for Worship, which is the book that we almost all of us who are in ministry have on our bookshelves and, and lots of people who are not in ministry also have on, on their bookshelf and then it has a, a CD-ROM and I'm sure nobody actually has a CD-ROM anymore on their computer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, um, but we've got this, 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 uh, this amazing collection of, of liturgical um work which um and this is something that you've you've reflected on as well isn't it in in some of some of your writing and publications is kind of baptist baptist liturgy of different stages and ages and um i i wonder um if either through that or or just your experience of the union in in all the different roles that you've had both ecumenically and within the structures you you think there's something that you would like us to keep from some other time of baptist life that you maybe we're risk of losing or maybe there are things that we think we've brought now that we have now that you're really glad that we've gained um so kind of two questions there what what would you be uh keen for us not to lose or that we might have already lost from an older time of baptist life and what would you be uh keen for us to kind of really reach for in our present um i think it's almost one and the same thing um in the past um in the in the early baptist life there was a huge attention in a quite different way today to um confessions we were attentive to words mm -hmm. and to expressing our faith as a kind of um witness to wider society sometimes because they needed to, to not misunderstand us but there was an attention to words that is a seriousness we can't afford to lose. Words should never, um, never just become lazy. Um, however, there is and always has been a spontaneity and an informality um, and an intuitive approach to worship within Baptist life, which is characteristically us and should not be smothered by um, too much preciousness um, with text. And I think it's that kind of combination which we get better at some points than others. Um, I think um, in the 20th century, we've seen some extremely good moments maybe on the extremes of the spectrum. Um, and in the 21st century, it's a little bit more in a convergent mode. In the early 20th century, um, we were very much into kind of liturgical texts that showed an identification with, with text in other churches. So we became, if you like, sacramentally um, more akin to Anglicans and Methodists and Reformed. Uh, our, our theological and liturgical writing had that kind of feel to it. 
But with the charismatic movement, there was this kind of explosion of the experiential. Um, and in a way, people sort of diverged at that point. But in the 21st century, I think both of these movements have both run their course and left a legacy. And what we have now is, yeah, um, a huge fascination for worship design, creating worship that is both visual and, and exciting, um, but also quite contemplative at times. And, and I think I want to throw into this mix, if you like, where I think whatever movement we've come from or wherever we find ourselves now, I'd love to believe we could say something like, worship is pure theater, hmm. spectacle, drama. It invites people to step into an imaginary place, to see the world as God intended it to be. Worship always tells a story that has infinite possibilities for transforming where we inhabit, the times we inhabit, the mm. culture that we have imbibed. The potential of worship is not to escape from the world. And I don't mean an imaginary place as in escapism. I mean, it has the potential to take us into a wider world in which we will see things more clearly. Um, Thomas Merton said, we retreat from the world in order to gaze more intently upon it. Hmm. That's not escapism. That's about a deepening of discernment and insight. And in that place of insight and inspiration, um, worship springs up. And the more it is deeply theatrical and dramatic, the happier I am. Um, but I think I'm not alone in saying that. Baptists are massively enthusiastic about worship. Um, they don't always reflect on it very well. And maybe what I'm saying is it's kind of good to do a little bit of reflecting on what we're doing so that we can sometimes do it better. Yeah. And not to be afraid of thinking of, of worship in these terms of theater, drama, spectacle, and imaginary place. Mm. Um, you talk about looking at the world more intently, and I, I wonder if there is um, somewhere that you've seen God particularly at work in the world recently, in, in the work that you're doing. You've, you've mentioned restorative justice as well, but um, are there other things that you see movements people perhaps where where do you where do you find god at work in the world at the moment what 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 does worship bring you back to when you look at the world intently um one of the things that's helping me to see um the spirit moving in in difficult waters and here I talk about within the church, first of all. I mean, we can come to God that we meet in culture more widely, but within the church, I think we are at a very crucial, 
crossroads in which we are trying to learn how to live with difference and with disagreement um, and not feel pushed to take positions that we are not able authentically to do, um, but at the same time, not to lose fellowship. Mm. So I am at the moment involved in participating and facilitating in two different local congregations who are undergoing the course that you may have come across and others listening called Creating Sanctuary. And this is a, a course designed to help congregations just think about how to be places that are safe in which people of vastly different perspectives um, on all manner of issues, gender, race, sexuality, theological reading, that they can actually just listen to each other. And the experience in these two churches so far has been really reassuring because when people come to this course, they often think there's an agenda here. We're definitely meant to come out with a view. And, and that makes everybody a bit nervous. But as we reach stage five or six um, in these two courses that I'm involved in, it's quite clear that the movement that's happening within the congregations is not at all defined by whether they've changed their views on particular issues. What has happened has been a deepening of love and fellowship between those that have participated and, and a desire to find certain principles which I think are restorative, which are about how to listen to each other and not lose faith in one another and not lose heart that the church and God's spirit in the church will hold us through this time. Hmm. Do you think the um, the decision to to listen to the other is is itself, I suppose, a theological principle? I um, I, I mean, I mean, a lot of people who would who would not even be able to have the conversation around listening to someone else because there is a right answer, and the right answer is this answer. So we we can't listen to that answer, and to even listen to it is itself a kind of uh, seen as doubt. Perhaps is the best way of putting it, and that actually maybe the Maybe, uh, uh, I guess, what am I trying to say? I think something about the idea that there is a theological conviction in the decision to listen. Do you think that that would be fair? Um, I'm arguing yeah. something. I, I, I think we, we, we all work from the conviction that what we're thinking is right. Otherwise, yeah. we wouldn't be thinking it. Yes. <laughs> um, and we all work with the hope that we are good listeners. We only learn how good we are at listening when we put ourselves in places where we need to listen to somebody who also thinks they're right and it's not where we are. So there is a huge test there of humility. Um, and, and I think in, in church life, one of the gifts, one of the gifts of the gospel is about being there for the other and not 
forcing ourselves and our views upon the other in a way that divides people. Um, I mentioned one of my projects being learning how to play golf. One of the interesting dimensions to this has been to move into a club that isn't church hmm. and to experience how people relate to each other in that context. Now, there's a lot of fun that goes on there, but my reaction thus far, a year in, is I've actually discovered a new love for church because I realize that there is this underlying motive that seems to drive us all. We know, we know to love one another as Christ has loved does. That means we're not gonna bitch about each other, even if they don't play by the rules. <laughs> um, there's, there's, there's just a, a gentleness or a potential for gentleness in, in covenant community, which is about always putting the other before self. Mm. Um, and if we can hold on to that golden rule, I think the distinctiveness about church is as relevant, perhaps more relevant than ever for contemporary culture because many people are looking for connections and will join gym clubs or golf clubs or walking clubs. Um, they'll do that before they'll come to church. But my sense is that when people come into a church that has discovered how to be open and generous and hospitable, people find something that they haven't found elsewhere. And if we can hold on to that, then we are already offering the gospel without preaching it. I think, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's, that's a really helpful and very deep reflection. And I will be thinking about that for a while. Um, I think you're right about kind of the, um, when we get it right, I think there's nothing quite like the church um, is there. It's, it's a really very special space to be in. Um, I um, I wonder if over your lifetime um, there have been perhaps churches or or people who've been particularly influential for you um, in kind of being that space for you to grow and be in and um, and enjoy and have that sense of identity and purpose. Um, I've had one particular mentor in my life who has in the last few years died. Um, but he was my senior minister when I first went into ministry in Sutton. Um, and he remained a, a lifelong mentor for me, Gethin Abraham Williams. He, he was a beautiful theologian, um, wonderful writer, um, and had a, just a wicked sense of humor. Um, <laughs> but what was, what was very important from him was a kind of permission that he gave me and helped me to hold on to when I felt conflicted between um, evangelical and ecumenical debates. Um, I remember in very early years of my ministry, I had a diary. In those days, you know, you had a hard diary, you didn't have electronic diaries. And on one side of the diary 
was this sticker which had a kind of evangelical message on it. And on the other side of the diary was an ecumenical logo. And it, it sort of uh, exemplified my tension because I knew that in different environments, people wanted different language. Mm. And at times I felt, am I a fraud or what? Because I wanted to hold on to both. And I, I didn't believe one had the monopoly on the other. And Gethin was the kind of person who was able to just smile and give me permission to just keep going that way and, and not let myself feel I had to fall into one camp or another. He, he was a great, um, a great mediator of, of difficult terrain. Um, and I, I think that, that was for me perhaps the biggest struggle in my early years of ministry, finding my identity in, in a way that could be authentic to me and not what other people wanted me to be. Um, I'm sure that's true for us all, um, that we must just be allowed to be who we are and, and grow in the faith and change in our perspectives um, and go on changing. I have absolutely definitely changed in my views. And I think the other thing that has probably been the biggest challenge is I, I think people who hold positions of responsibility in, in the union or in churches or in colleges, you know, we, we live with this tension of who we are as individuals and who we are as representative figures and how to hold that line authentically is, is really tough. And for that reason, I think we need to hold leaders very close to our prayers um, because we can be sure they're losing a lot of sleep. Yes, I, I absolutely think that is true. I um, I was in a conversation, uh, in a different conversation on a different podcast <laughs> recently, who, um, uh, who was an ecumenical guest, um, Archbishop Doye, and he, he gave this fabulous commentary on the idea that um we see leadership as not having friendship in it in the west because that's what western colonialization has done in christianity um and that is something that that kind of the the world church doesn't have in it and and actually we need to we need to rid ourselves of it in the west and and learn from this idea that leadership can have friendship in it um, and it was just one of those, you know, those conversations where you think this is such a helpful idea, because um, I think often at the moment we look to those who lead us with often maybe suspicion or um, with our own agendas and and actually fail to perhaps see the full humanity of the, of the people who occupy lots of different posts and in lots of different ways. And I um, I think I think you're right that the tension of of speaking for others and having to kind of where your own voice fits in that and doesn't which I'm sure is a reflection you bring because you've spoken for and been in many institutions in your time um both ecumenically and, and in the union um you you've had a role as um deputy general secretary of the baptist union in fact haven't you um yeah. which is mm -hmm. one of those things that if you read if you read a history of women in ministry <laughs> 
your name gets your name turns up very quickly um, because you were the first female deputy general secretary of the Baptist Union. And I don't know if you were the only female Baptist deputy general secretary of the Baptist Union. I'm not sure if there have there been many deputy general secretaries. I'm not sure, but um, I um, I wonder um, how does it feel to be uh, to be talked about in those kind of terms as this kind of history maker in that way did, did it feel like that at the time um did you did you realize what that meant um I'm happy to say no <laughs> um to be perfectly honest um I don't think that landed on me particularly often or um and and I don't think of myself as a history maker um I'm not sure what to say really because I have a very um this may come across slightly strange but at every step at every job for me a litmus test was am I having fun um and I don't mean fun in a frivolous way but I, I do mean fun. I mean, do I wake up in the morning and think it's good to get up and do this job? Mm. Do I wake up in the morning and think, what a privilege to do this job? It may have very big headaches. It may feel very stressful. But in, in addition to all that, there has to be this underlying gut feeling of this is, this is right. Let's get on with it and let's have fun. And, and it was... For me, at every stage, team, um, that's a bit cliche-ish, but I, I mean that because I'm, I am not an all-sufficient person. Um, I need other people to help me make good. And that's what I mean by fun. The combination of meeting people who together could do something really good hmm. was just sheer joy. Um, and so if I look back, it's about, who I worked with and what groups I worked with and what fun did we have at that time, which might have had some, some impact. Mm. Um, so if, if, if history was made, then it was, it was by default, um, not conscious. For sure. <laughs> well, I think, um, I think I would say one of the things I, um, I always think of you is somebody with a, a, a very infectious laugh. Um, because you have a great a great giggle and um and I think um I think it's it's a joy that's catching so I think as a spiritual discernment exercise whether you're having fun is 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 definitely in step with the spirit I, I definitely think so because um it's something I think you bring to others very naturally and I'm gonna make you blush by saying that but um <laughs> and I suppose you know it's it's also um it, it it's a resource um for survival, um, how do you keep going when everything is going really tough? Um, it, it's a survival mechanism that you can stand back and see the funny side of it, or you can stand back with others and just stay light for a moment. Um, and that you do see some of the really funny things in, in some of the oddest, hardest moments. Um, so yeah, but I I guess it, it has been a kind of um, uh, a place of resilience for me, and 
And if my laughter and my fun is infectious and others can enjoy it, well, that's great. I'm, I'm happy for that. <laughs> So um, in every in every conversation with our guests, um, we ask two things at the end. Um, we say, if you have one thing to declare to the union, what would it be? Um, try at this moment to be deeply countercultural, and by that I mean stop splintering and separating and dividing. Recover a countercultural action in this day, which is to come together, to unite, to grow together. On the political front, we see it everywhere. Division, splintering, divide and rule. Um, this is not, I think, the language and the vocabulary of the gospel. And whatever way we want to structure ourselves, we desperately need to be holding to a principle that union means coherence, cooperation, collaboration, communion. Mm -hmm. um, and all of that doesn't lend itself to power grabbing and splintering, which is what the world is very good at. And I would like the union not to emulate that culture. Well, that neatly follows us into then, if you think Baptists have one thing to declare to the world, what would it be? Um, only one. <laughs> you can have a few if you like. <laughs> um, we've got a particular story. Um, We've got a particular story, which I think um, is about how we understand and practice church. So in lockdown, um, a number of denominations and churches have found themselves in a unique struggle. Clergy to engage with the faithful and the faithful to en engage with the church because suddenly they found they couldn't have face-to-face -face sharing of the sacraments. I, I've experienced conversations with close friends in other traditions who actually have entered a crisis of faith because they didn't know what to hold on to. Mm. Now they'll come through that because there will be face-to-face -face communion again. But I don't think we've had that same crisis as Baptists because our focus on some would call it ecclesial communion. Others might rather describe it as our focus on nurturing church as a pilgrim people, constantly on the move, pitching our tent wherever there's a convenient place to put in the pegs, has made us, I think, more missionally expedient in normal life, but also more equipped in this socially distanced world to keep fellowship and communion going in the way that we're used to. So part of me wants to say that because we, we know just as Baptists, the joy of praying and praising across the internet in multimedia services, in creative ways, we did this before 
um, we haven't been adapting to a new norm. We've been experienced, I think, continuity with how as Baptists we tend to do church, which is quite informal, quite experimental, um, but is rooted in the metaphor of pilgrim people who are walking together on the move, finding interesting places to pitch tent, whether it's on Zoom <laughs> or in a festival. It's about pitching tent in unusual places is, is unique to our experience of being church. Sometimes we've done that because of persecution. Other times we've done it because we are just missionally very rogue. <laughs> and, 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 and enjoy doing things that might bring kingdom surprises. Um, and I don't think that's about being deviant to, con to tradition. I think it's a, a continuity with our understanding of church as a pilgrim movement people. That's, I think, our gift hmm. in part to the wider church. Thank you. Well, Myra, it's been an absolute joy as ever to um, to chat and to hear some of your reflections on um, ministry, Baptist life, um, and all that it has brought you and taught you and all that you have been able to teach us over the last uh, few minutes. And so I really want to thank you on behalf of all our listeners and, um, and to say that we wish you well in your golfing and um, especially um, uh, I know you've got a slightly competitive edge, so I hope you're uh, you're teeing <laughs> up, um, kind of at at a at a whatever it's, is it a par? It's called I can't remember. Oh but yes, my my handicap's a bit high at the moment. It's thirty three, but there we go. I'll keep working at it. But best be before you go, I also want to thank you and your peers who have come into ministry during my time. I am so hopeful hmm. that you and others will not jump ship, but you will stay there and stay the course and bring to Baptist life the unique gifts that you have. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. God bless. And you. So David, what are your thoughts listening to that? Well, Beth, thank you for doing the, the interview. Uh, Myra is one of those names that I'm aware of, not least from my copy of Gathering for Worship, but I've never met Myra. As far as I know, I've never even been in the same room. So I found it really interesting that this name that I've been aware of, uh, just to hear from her and hear about something she's been doing. Fascinated by the stuff on restorative justice. I've been looking up Mint House that she mentioned uh, this afternoon and getting to know that work a bit. Um, but one of the things I was particularly struck by Hmm. Uh, was towards the the end of her uh, interview, um, where she's talking about all, you asking her about all the different roles and things, and she talks about you know, am I having fun as being a key barometer of of being in the right place, and uh, which reminded me, as of course all good podcasts need a mention of uh, Barbara Brown Taylor, <laughs> uh, of something in we one of her books. We should have a weekly a weekly Barbara Brown Taylor reference, and this is I, I yeah. think it's a. <laughs> Must we'll be a, a thing. bingo card. Bingo <laughs> card to accompany it. We'll have to start paying her royalties at some point. Um, <laughs> and she talks about being in some kind of angst um, in one of her books about what exactly it is God was asking her to do. And, and she talks about being sitting on this fire escape one evening, 
being bereft of, of you know being sure of anything and she just felt that god was saying to her whatever you want to do whatever's going to bring you joy and and so that reminded me of that hearing myra talking about uh, having fun. there are times when ministry is really difficult there are times where it's the most wonderful thing as well um but i think if you don't have that sense of actually even on a difficult day i I'm at peace about being here. I'm enjoying this. I, I think it's very hard to sustain. And, and so I was really interested in her reflections on that. She She's had fun. All these different roles she's done uh, all over the place, but they've all, and, and you said about sort of your memories of, of being in her lectures and things, but of, of her laughter. And I think perhaps that is what ties in with what she what she was saying. And then she said about the importance of being our authentic selves. And uh, I, I think that's a real challenge, something I, I've been working on uh, forever, really. Um, and I think ministry is often filled with so many expectations. Life is filled with expectations and it is vulnerable to be yourself. And yet by sort of being herself and authentically herself and doing things that she wants to do, I just feel like that has given her, she, I don't think she'd be able to do the things she'd been able to do if she wasn't at peace with who she was and who God had made her to be and that she was enjoying it. And so I was just really struck by all these different things that she's been able to do. And actually undergirding all of that is this sense of fun, peace and being at peace with oneself, uh, which I, I just, yeah, I found that all really, really interesting and uh, fascinating. I aspire to be more like Myra in all of those respects. I was really, I really thought about that too, this idea that kind of draw almost as a resilience technique, you know, um, that you can sort of step back from a situation you're in and look at the absurdity of it and find find the humour. And actually, there are times where, especially in church, perhaps especially in church life, that we really do need to find the humour. But um, yeah, it's sometimes a bit bonkers and that we just need to be able to enjoy it in its absurdity and and rather than kind of stressing about it i guess it's laugh or cry isn't it and then she really really went for laughter as the way to to manage and i i yeah i've i've thought um as somebody who's laugh sometimes is a i think a defensive mechanism myself uh, i think i've really thought about that that actually i think sometimes you can you can hide behind a laugh mm. um and um and that doesn't mean it's not a real laugh but it, it's just a way of easing tension or kind of changing an emotion i think or maybe if you laugh at yourself first nobody else laughs at you i think sometimes we do that um and uh but i i yeah i've, I've really been thinking about yeah that kind of how do we really enjoy it and enjoyment as almost a spiritual discernment actually mm. yeah um I, I think we're both quite big fans of kind of Ignatian kind of spirituality, a kind of, you know, coming back to these conversations about what makes us fully alive. And um, I think uh, for me, yeah, the conversation about what makes me fully alive is is a great one. But actually, uh, is it making me joyful? Is it is a really, yeah, I mean, it's there in scripture, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the idea that we yeah. should rejoice always. And um, yeah, I just, yeah, it was something I've thought about a lot since recording that interview with her. Yeah, I thought that was so helpful. Um, and I was very, I, I know a little bit about restorative justice, but not a huge amount, I have to say. Um, and what, but hearing Mara talk about it, the thing that 
particularly struck me that she said was about how it puts power in the hands of, of those involved. Because in our sort of current judicial systems, all the speaking is done by the professionals. And it struck me that restorative justice might be a very Baptist practice in that regard, you know, as people who do congregational discernment, who believe in pre-civil believers and, and everybody's contribution being of worth, that God can speak through any of us. It struck me that fits rather well, actually, with that whole notion. And it, it, I was just reflecting, I've not had a huge amount of experience with the court system. Um, I guess that's something to praise God for. But it is very much... you professionalized you know and just this temptation and sometimes i guess i was just then thinking about wider culture and society and and how easy it is things to become professionalized um including ministry and i'm very you know committed i'm, I'm a recovering perfectionist i want things to be done well and uh, you know if you can't do it properly don't do it sort of thing i i get all of that but at the same time there's something about participating and, and hearing every voice that is so essential to to restoration and reconciliation. I was very, very struck and uh, provoked into thinking by by what she said there. Yeah, it's a lot messier, isn't it? Than... Mm. But then, yeah, I, I think of the times I was thinking about, kind of now thinking about times I've been in court, and that makes it sound like I've been in the dark. <laughs> You've know, been a befriender in, in court and, and kind of sat with people who've been through really complicated and messy situations and and you're on the kind of rooms of things and just being with them and and how it all does feel quite at times quite clinical and yeah. um, uh, and I think you know a lot of our images of courtrooms are kind of um you know wood paneling and and kind of almost churchy actually as mm. kind of architecture um but the ones I've mostly been in have been kind of you know magistrates level kind of the le- the lower the, you know the kind of lower end of the spectrum and and kind of um they look like really ugly conference rooms and then they kind of you know it's all kind of people kind of moved in here and then shuffled out there and then when's the next date that this court hearing can be heard for the rest of it because we're not going to be able to fit it in the next you know however long and um and it was it yeah I just I think the thing that strikes me about those situations is is yeah it does remove all the power and then it becomes um you know these incredibly painful and often domestic if we're honest conversations that happen in those spaces become yeah thrown around in these legal terms and you think I'm not sure what this is achieving for any of the people in this situation and um especially for the person actually who's had something happen to them which might be messy and complicated often is but um but if they're they're kind of i don't want I'm, I'm nervous of using the phrase victim but if you know the person who's uh, myra had a lovely phrase for it didn't she um the the i think she used something like the hurt and the hurter but i don't mm. like that she had a great line i'm like i can't pick it up out of my memory but um she had this brilliant way of describing it and i think the person who has um who has brought that pain into the courtroom uh, and wanted something to be done with it often goes away, I think, feeling really more bruised by the system. Yes. That has kind of almost re-traumatised it. And, um, and I, yeah, I do 
to, to make me think how can how can this work in a way that is there a way of making this work in situations that can be very messy um because i you know Sometimes I want retribution and revenge and, and <laughs> yeah, removal. Yeah. You know, all those big R's that we throw at the kind of justice system. Actually, sometimes that does look like what justice looks like, but but sometimes it doesn't actually create a sense of rightness for the person themselves, and I would want them to have that. Mm. Oh, so we've gone very deep here. This is this is wow. the effect of listening to Myra. We've um we've got really into this um yeah this this deep conversation where do we find the humor again david as we as we listen into this well um i don't know if it's humor but one other thing that i also didn't know was that myra was a child of the manse and uh, i thought that was very interesting and uh, i know a number of other baptist ministers for whom that's the the case and uh, i it just got me thinking about i wonder if my own children might ever tread that particular path and uh, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. If they were, to, <laughs> not that I suspect I'd have any choice. But yeah, yeah, I've met one of your daughters, and she seems like she already got her own thoughts. And um, if she's if she's called by God, I don't think you wouldn't have much say over it. <laughs> no, I mean there are those who would question how much say I have anything for anything at the moment. So uh, yeah, never mind when she reaches a adulthood in ten years' time. She was um, marvelous. Leading adults in the way of was it, ecological justice when I met her. So. That's right. It was on the march in London. She was adamant she wasn't going to school today. And one of us had to take her to go and protest. Yeah. Yeah. Right, so I, I think it's my... Go on. No, I was just I was just thinking how many um, how many friends are children of the months who are in ministry, actually, and how it, it is a thing, isn't it? I... I one of my first weeks at college, somebody like kind of talking about who else, like this kind of went around the room and who else in their families were ministers. My family don't even go to church. No, <laughs> like, exactly. Same with mine. Yeah. It's one of those moments of like, nope. <laughs> nope. Don't think anybody else would regularly attend worship at all. Um, certainly don't think anybody else is in membership of a Baptist church. Um, no, it's um, my answer. Yeah, my my answer. Very committed member of her local church, and that, um, yeah, that's that's kind of it. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, I yeah, a very interesting dynamic. One perhaps we'll uh, we'll get an, another guest on for whom that's been the case and and tease that out a bit more. Be interesting. Um, I think it's my turn to do the blessing this week. Uh, so I'll, I'll do that, and then we'll finish with this week's podcast so again we express our thanks to the order of baptist ministry for providing this for us i mean not that we asked them and they gave us permission we just took it but thank you to them anyway so living god enable us this day to be pilgrims and companion committed to the way of christ faithful to the call of christ discerning the mind of christ offering the welcome of Christ, growing in the likeness of Christ, engaging in the mission of Christ, in the world that belongs to Christ. Amen. Beth, lovely to see you. Thank you, David. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And we hope to see you next week as well. Bye. <laughs>